Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is a very good friend of ours, Dr. Louise Beaumont, who has a portfolio career, including chairing the Open Finance and Payments Working Group at Tech UK and advising companies such as Pay.UK, Bottomline Technologies, and MyTech, as well as investing in startups such as MessageHood. Louise, welcome to the show. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you are most focused on today? Oh, well, thank you very much for the introduction. It's wonderful to be here with One Vision. Um, I am focused on everything, which is a which is a, an all encompassing answer. Um, but today, in fact, I've worked with Tech UK um, on the Open Finance and Payments Working Group which is about taking the next step beyond open banking into open finance. I'm sure we're going to get into what that means. I've actually spent the day today with pay.uk um, and I'm working with them on, uh, uh, on implementing their new strategy, transforming the organization. Um, and uh, one of the companies that I've spoken to today is MyTech, which is an identity a technology company very focused on reducing fraud through the power of identity, um, which speaks to me a, a great deal. Um, bottom line technologies, I was with Ed from Bottom Line at Money 2020 uh, a mere couple of weeks ago, celebrating our third anniversary actually of working together to bring open banking into the repertoire of bottom line technologies. And the focus on all of these things is making the outcome better for the end user. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that as well. Um, in terms of the other company that I've also spent some time with today, um, Message Heard. I was working through the growth strategy of Message Heard earlier today. Now, that's a podcasting company uh, which has clients like Audible and Spotify, as well as making our own shows and making shows for the kind of companies that need to have podcasts in their marketing repertoire, but don't know quite how to do them. So we work for Buffer, for example, Hayes Recruitment, and um, uh, in, the, in London, the Girls Day School Trust, which is actually a network of independent schools. So um, I have a varied career. Um, you, it sounds terribly professional when you call it a portfolio career. I think it's just... Um, the magpie eye of a person who's interested in lots of different things. So that's what I'm most focused on today. Everything. I love that magpie eye. I, I think that we could both relate to that. Uh, it's hard to keep us on one topic, let alone one company to work with. Um, let's talk a little bit more specifically then about Tech UK and, and how you look at open banking and open finance and, you know, they're kind of different things. And we also want to get into what do you think about PSD2 in terms of its success and opening up competition for incumbent banks and really working on those open standards um, beyond finance. Let's Let's talk about that a little bit about how things are happening in the UK and what's going on there. So we were um, in the UK, um, first movers around the whole idea of open banking. Now, the idea of open banking is that you create data with your behavior as an individual or as an organization. 
And you should be able to share that data safely and securely with organizations that actually want to deliver you valuable services based on that data. And they need that data in order to continue to be able to deliver those valuable services. So that's the principle behind open banking. And you can imagine as you would extend it to lots of other different areas of financial services, you would start to think of it as open finance as you wrap pension companies and insurance companies and mortgage companies more into your tender open embrace. Um, and it goes further than that. It obviously goes out, out there into the outer reaches of open data. So you can start to break up other oligopolistic industries to allow in the innovation and the competition which is powered by data. But has it been successful? And the answer is a bit, not as much as it can be. We're at, the, we're at the very start of this because the technocrats took charge and made it all about API specifications and data standards are critically important. We can't do this without them, but they are not the be all and end all of market development. So we've got in the UK around about 4 million people who use open banking powered services at the moment. Um, but what we're doing is we're fixing broken bits of the customer journey, broken bits of the customer experience by putting in you know, services which could be useful. So, for example, account information aggregation. Yes, it is useful to you to know what you spend your money on. Actually, that's just the first stage. If you're an organization, yes, it helps you to know what you spend your money on. But actually, what you need is to use that to power appropriate borrowing, for example, because your risk can be assessed. And you're looking not just at what you're spending your money on, you're looking at your spending you're looking at what your sales is like, um, what your uh, costs are like, and therefore what the peaks and troughs of your business are like. So when you aggregate these things together, you can get much more powerful services. So we're only at the kind of the first generation of aggregation of service. Actually, as broader and deeper services become available, because the way I think of it, and people may have heard this before, but I always think of it as being like a data daisy. So if you imagine what a daisy looks like, a white flower, yellow bit in the middle, lots of white petals. Every time you add another petal of data, like your bank account or your accountancy package, you're adding another petal on your data daisy. And that means you're growing a much more interesting, much more vibrant, much more attractive data daisy with more petals on it. The more petals you have, the more value that data brings, the more you can aggregate it together and offer more valuable services on top of it. So we're just at the technocratic end of open banking at the moment around API specification and the earliest reaches of market development. We can and will go much further and we will, as I say, bring open finance into our tender embrace. I don't think I can overlook a daisy in a different way. Imagine a field of data daisies. Yeah, that's that what we're doing, a whole field of data daisies. Right? That, that should be the... Louise, when are you going to write a piece on, on a field of 
databases. I think that would be brilliant. I, I, th- I think I, I can't be trusted to write, but I can draw. <laughs> well, we should work on something together. It's a project. <laughs> you, you put it together and, and so eloquently, there is so much complexity around it, but you're absolutely right. There is so much more that can be done. Um, and, and let's go back to your mission a little bit which is to make the case for the sound foundations required to deliver the services consumers and small businesses deserve, which is what part of what you were just starting on is how do you create a positive, a better outcome for the end users? So can you talk about what data rights consumers and, and small business deserve, what they don't have right now, <laughs> what type of regulatory framework will be needed beyond what is in place today to get there? So um, I, I can imagine a future and, and Europeans will, will just be distraught at this point where we talk about um, PSD3, Payment Services Directive 3 for the Europeans. We'll move on from the next generation of open banking to open finance to open data in the UK. Um, GDPR, another great big one for, for, for all Europeans, is um, general uh, directives around data protection. Um, and we might end up with another GDPR, another iteration of it. And the reality here is that if you want um, to create the light and the air for innovation, for competition to thrive, for end users to get the better uh, services to get to get more competition for their custom access to those better services. You're talking about creating a regulatory environment which values the data that we create through our behaviour. And it might be, and this is a you, you can paint a dystopian story here as well, but it might be our health data, for example. And you've got to think about the personal rights to you that you have to your data, and then you've got to think about how do you handle metadata. So if I'm just handing over securely and safely my data to power a service I then receive, I should be able to give that service to receive, to give the data to receive the service. I should also be able to say, if I no longer want that service, I should be able to withdraw my data. Stop giving any more, but also withdraw the data I gave. Now that then says, okay, that's interesting. You can withdraw your data totally understand that. But what about the metadata that was created around the data you gave to the service provider to power that service? That metadata is their data. So there's quite an interesting regulatory tension between allowing me to have withdraw my data from a service I no longer wish to to use and to withdraw the data previously given, but also to understand that that service provider has in the provision of their service created metadata and if that metadata is anonymized i can never pronounce that the first go if it's anonymized and it is used to power better service for other people but it's no longer my data i can't withdraw that it's the metadata the service provider created the value that they created so I think, as is always the way with both legislation and regulation, um, it's not one and done. You've got to keep a live eye on the market and how that market is developing. And you've got to keep your regulation and your legislation appropriate 
And remember, by appropriate, you're meaning that you're protecting your consumers uh, out there in the marketplace, whether they're individual retail consumers or whether they're businesses. But you're also seeking to protect the innovation and competition that you have sparked. And um, for those uh, in the UK who are wrestling with the realities of Brexit, where we um, amputated ourselves off from the European Union, um, we can now see what uh, perhaps the Brexit dividend that was so vividly um, headlined but without any subsequent detail, what it actually means, because you can imagine a future where it is our regulatory and legislative regime which makes us more attractive to incoming entrepreneurs, more attractive to innovators, more attractive to those people that wish to create competition, more attractive to the, to the investors that want to fund that innovation and competition, um, and that we could end up with uh, one of the better places in the world, perhaps even the best place in the world, to innovate and to drive those competitive services, which means that our end users benefit first. In order for any of those things to be true, we have to have a very fit regulatory regime, not one which is static or stuck or one and done, but one which is fit and in itself evolving and innovating. Interesting. I, I, you, you think about the data that you share willingly, and then you don't really think about the metadata that um, is actually being created on top of all of that data. And so, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, well, I'm going to share with Apple my my fitness data because it's helping me, you know, track my fitness. And then that data gets into another application, and then it's built upon that, et cetera, et cetera. And um, then you think about the choices that you make in the companies that you will share that with. But in reality, you know, once data is out, it's out and it's running in the wild, whether we're anonymized or not. Um, switching gears a little bit, you received your doctorate uh, and we celebrate here, not just educational uh, accomplishments, but the fact that we have doctors on this program very often. Um, so Dr. Louise Beaumont, uh, you received your doctorate from the University of Strathclyde, where you studied semiotics and corporate identity. What are some of the things that banks and fintechs are doing right during this pandemic and what's what's the message that they're missing um so first of all let me explain um what semiotics is because quite often i get i get asked what it is and it's um it's the study of meaning it's the study of how meaning is created conveyed received and understood um and that, what that means is i might put a message out there um, but I cannot guarantee how it's received and understood. So in order to make sure, the to increase the probability that what you're saying is in fact received in, by the people you want it to be received by and understood in perhaps the way that you would like it to be, uh, to be understood, you've got to put an awful lot of effort in up front into creating, conveying and reaching that audience in the right way. And that means no room whatsoever for complacency and one of the challenges that we have with big oligopolistic banks is that they tend to have a very big broadcast approach to communication because what they've got i mean the irony is they're called financial services and of course it isn't it's financial products 
which are mass marketed without concern to the end customer, without consideration of the end customer, because you're pushing a big monolithic product to a mass audience. Now there you've got a real problem with the communication that you want to do because you're, you're mass communicating to, to an audience which isn't mass. It's a million segments and sub-segments and fragments of segments. And ultimately, we are all a market of one. So how do you get this right? Well, paradoxically, some of the fintechs might be doing slightly better at this, but not because they're necessarily better at corporate identity or better at marketing or better at brand or better at communication. What they've got is a smaller product. So they can, they can sharpen the message around a smaller product to land it in the head of the audience. Where I would like to get to is in my, in my um, hot fantasy world of open, uh, where I want to get to is services which are hyper-personalized, predictive and preemptive. And it is the service which wraps itself around you, powered by your data and the petals of data that you add to your data daisy. And the service itself is the communication. It's hyper-personalized, it's predictive, it's preemptive. It wraps itself around you. So you haven't got a big dumb product which has to be translated via communication. You've got a service which in and of itself is the communication. It is the experience. That's really interesting. You know, do you think even though fintechs have less uh, product to talk about, do you think it's also that, you know, they have sort of less time and less history to deal with in terms of the way they're talking about themselves? And do you think that during the pandemic and during all of this period post-Brexit, that banks and fintechs had been doing that communication right? It just seems like there's, it's almost like it's more possibility for, for brands to do things wrong than to actually get it right. Um, I think um, no, I, I can't judge anybody um, on grounds of pandemic because, you know, I don't think any of us really got it right at any point during the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's such a fast moving situation. The, and, and I can't give kind of marks out of 10 for organizations as to whether they've, they've nailed it or not. Um, if, if they've still got a product mindset, they'll never get the communication right because you, they're two fundamentally static things. You're, you've got a static product and you're wrapping communication around it to try and make it pervade in the mind of your audience. If you take a much more experience-led uh, approach to the service you're delivering, then I think you can, you can, that is the experience. It is the communication. It's not separate. Now, that is a fundamental challenge for any organization which isn't creating itself around service. Any organization, you can't increment your way from product to service. You have to start with the service, which means you're starting with the data that powers that service and you're building into it that hyper-personalization um, uh, preemptiveness um, uh, so that you are ahead of the customer. Their behavior is leading you to what is their next need uh, or want.
my my mind is like I am absorbed in everything you're talking about. For any of our listeners who is listening to this podcast, please do go find the wisdom. We'll make sure that you know we'll we'll uh, include your contact information here because this is this is educational is is thought provoking it's thoughtful is insightful and you're just brilliant all right i don't know how many adjectives i can add in there um but seriously this is what you just said right there is is gold and i wish more people will be doing that and following your advice challenging advice though it's not easy it's not easy to do the things i'm describing it's uh you've got to be willing to transform you've got to be willing to um to have an extreme outcome because it's the only thing that can drag you from where you are today to where you need to be and where our economies need us to be happier energies is better served and leads to a better economy it adds up to a better stronger healthier economy absolutely and then we'll start going into incentives why would people do that all right i'm digressing <laughs> because there are a million questions that that can pump up after that. Let, let's switch gear a little bit about uh, something else you just mentioned in the very beginning, Message Heard. You're the executive chair of Message Heard, which focuses on helping enterprises with their podcast strategies and stories they want to tell. Podcast with purpose. I love that because that's one of the things we try to do too, is how do we tell stories with purpose and shine the light on brilliant minds and ideas that need to be spotlighted. Um, back to Massachusetts, can you talk about that experience a little bit and, and why that resonates with you? Yeah, I mean, you look at all of the things I do and go, well, it's all in the financial services, innovation, competition place. You know, why on earth is she chairing a podcasting company? Why on earth? I, I'm an investor as well. Why on earth did she put her money into this podcast company? And why is she giving up her time to chair it? Well, it's all about data, number one. Um, there's a lot of data in podcasting. It's very valuable. And most people don't pay the blindest bit of attention to it. And you can make a much better product and reach a much larger audience if you actually look at the data. So data number one. And two, the power of storytelling um, as an art to it. So yes, I like the science bit, but I really like the art form. And I think the spoken word is hugely powerful. It is, after all, how we as humans have been communicating for a while. So I think um, if we take you know, several millennia of experience, it's a pretty important way uh, to communicate. And the spoken word really matters to me. And I guess that's because when I was um, seven or eight, I was given a, a little um, tape player um, so that tells you I'm 51 years of age, and this was a very long time ago. Um, and I wasn't allowed to have my light on to read because I was supposed to be going to sleep. However, the rules didn't explicitly state that I couldn't have my tape player playing. So I would have my tape player playing under the duvet where I couldn't be spotted for breaking any potential rules. But I could, in fact, listen to stories and and I found it to be a very, I mean, these are adult words for a child's experience, but I found it to be a very intimate, very cocooned, private 
space where I could just listen. And because it was dark and, 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 and I wasn't allowed my light on, it was a very pure audio experience. And those really are the words of a grown-up um, uh, translating a child's experience. But I just want you to imagine being seven or eight and tucked up under the duvet and just listening to a story with, with no nothing cluttering up your, your field of vision. Your eyes are closed. You're snuggled under that duvet and you're just listening. And it's a very, very immersive, very powerful experience, which meant that I didn't go to sleep as early as I should have done and might have been tired for school the next day, but I was always wide awake for story time. Uh, I don't I don't want to give our sons those ideas uh, because it was hard enough to to take that little nightlight away so that uh, they couldn't read under covers, let alone having a uh, device to listen to music or spoken word or anything else like that. My goodness. Um, Brad, I thought you can um, ask Alexa to tell you stories, no? Yeah, you can, but that's if you put a device in their room or something. They'd probably like sit there and like do that all night. I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, you know, but but I I love that that you know the importance of spoken word and the importance of um, the impact that stories can tell. And I, I, so many brands and so many you know things that we've experienced in in our careers and our lives they don't tell that story. And you know, we just saw the other day um, the tenth anniversary of Steve Jobs passing. That I, I I watched the video that Apple had put together, and you know, just a couple minutes of Steve talking just makes you realize that these tech companies are not being led by people that tell stories well, um, very much. And you know that that is important to actually have that story align with your mission, vision, and values. Uh, along those lines, within your profile and your background, you say in your on your LinkedIn that you work with legislatures and regulators to drive positive disruption, which I love that term, uh, with corporates to cope with disruption and having led innovation within a large corporate, I can tell you most of them don't do it well, uh, and with startups to exploit disruption, which we're seeing in so many ways right now. So let's talk about that on a personal level as we start to wrap here. What are some of the ways that you've most impacted this? in those three things in your career? And what do you want to see happen across financial services in the UK and beyond, uh, beyond what we've already talked about? What gives you hope, Louise? What keeps me going? Um, so in terms of the positive disruption with the legislators and regulators, that really is, the, the example I would use there is um, putting my shoulder to the wheel around open banking and then open finance and, and subsequently open data because that creates a systemic change. And a systemic change is the only change which is going to make a difference to large you know, oligopolistic industries which have forgotten how to innovate and compete if they ever knew. And um, the point about disruption is not, you know, disruption for disruption's sake. I'm not a, you know, I might as well be an arsonist if that was the case. The point is to create a disruption which allows innovation and competition to, to, to germinate, to flourish. So with the legislators and regulators, I say everything about open. I, I care about that because of the impact on the end consumer. Corporates to hope, cope with that disruption. Um, I, I'd cite bottom line. They've got award-winning open banking services, which are now serving their customers, um, uh, small and medium-sized businesses, as well as major banks. 
Um, I'd cite um, uh, my, I'd cite Pay, Pay UK actually, which is uh, which runs the rails upon which open banking uh, services flow. That's really important. You've got to help organisations adapt to the disruption which is happening to to innovate and to compete. That's what it means. And with the startups to exploit it, um, certainly working with um, uh, funding options, which is a, a startup scaling rapidly um, to um, to make that next step. And of course, with with message a very different industry, but to connect with their audiences, and they are in their own way highly disruptive. And we make our own shows. That's really interesting. And we make shows, um, we just made one about called Finding Natasha, which is the story of a young English girl 50 years ago who was the first English girl to dance with the Kirov Ballet, now the Marinsky, and how she very nearly died in Soviet Russia. The Russian girl, the Soviet girl, Natasha, who saved her life, and the story 50 years later of Finding Natasha. So that's an example of a show we make for ourselves, and, and that has performed extraordinarily well with audiences around the world. Um, we make a show called Conflicted, which is the story of Eamon Dean, um, an, uh, an ex-Al-Qaeda bomb maker turned MI6 spy in conversation with a Greek Orthodox monk, uh, a retired Greek Orthodox monk, decoding everything which is happening in the Middle East and around the world. We released an episode recently on the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and Damon Dean's understanding of that, which is which has reached an enormous audience around the world. In fact, for Conflicted, we have well over one million downloads, which for a small company making a, a very niche show is an amazing performance. Um, and we're making a show at the moment for Red Bull, um, the you know the energy drink. Why? Because their their audiences love what we do. So. Um, and as I say, we, we also make shows for, for, for places like Audible and, and Spotify. We're making a, um, a true crime slash miscarriage of justice uh, story at the moment, uh, which will be live in February of next year. Why we love telling stories and everybody needs to tell stories. It's not just Netflix that needs to tell stories. It's Nat West. Everybody needs to tell stories. Everybody needs to tell stories and everyone needs to have hope. Um, everyone needs to dream a little bit. And if, if anything, I think one of the things that we have learned the last few years or more is that having a voice is a privilege. Having that platform to tell those stories is a privilege. And I do hope that we will have more chances and more people being in that space that can tell the stories with you, that can tell the stories for the rest who don't have a voice. Oh, that, that just makes you think about when you tell those stories, you, you have, um, there are consequences and be, always be mindful of the consequences. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, there's that too. But that explains why, because um, I, I, I stalk your Twitter feed every day, but that explains why some of the shares that you have on there. I, I, was, I, I was looking through some of those 
I remember recently, I'm like, what, what is this? What is Louise sharing? But now I know um, what's your association with message heard. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap, I want to ask you, you've, you've done a lot in this space. You have done a lot to shape the industry. You have done a lot to guide people towards thinking about innovation, having better sta data standards, um, thinking about creating opportunities for people to change things for the better. How can people find you and how can they help drive the change you're looking for in the financial space? Um, well, anybody can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, and I uh, apologize in advance for the content that I share. It is deeply personal. Um, so anybody can find, by, <laughs> find me by those, by those simple means. Um, the thing that I think will make a difference in the world is bringing that innovation and competition to the market so that the end users benefit and that we aggregate it up to an economy level benefit. My ambition for the UK is that we be the best place in the world to innovate. I would like our end users to get the benefit of anybody's bright idea first, in which case we need to be the best place. We need smart regulation about allowing and, and nurturing and, and in enabling the possibility of that innovation. And we need the the money, the VCs, the private equity firms, uh, to get that this is a safe place for their money because the the innovation is um, uh, is taking advantage of the regulatory sandboxes that we have here to trial ideas in the eyeline of the regulator. So I think what I would like to see is that innovation happening. I would like to see it benefiting the end users, and I'd like us to see an economic level uh, evaluation of the success. And my hope is that we'll get to get together in person soon, sooner rather than later. It's been too long. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Louise Beaumont today. And thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next week.